better and come with questions and with your mind thinking through the passage. There is an outline, so grab one that will hopefully help you uh, work through our passage and also do keep your Bibles open. We'll work our way through these 12 verses. Well, I'm going to pray one more time and then we'll have a look at this. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that as we do think about marriage and divorce and even singleness, we know that this is a sensitive issue for many of us here. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll give us ears that are willing to hear your way and your design for these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was on the 1st of November 2010, so that's a bit over six years ago. I was still in my third year of Bible college was towards the end of the year exams uh, started have started our last child ethan was born he was just under a month old and esther at that time she was three years old approaching four and this was the conversation i had with esther that night she was three esther out of the blue she asked me a question she asked will mama mama's how we say mummy mama will mama get married again she's three and she's thinking about this I said, no, marriage is forever. It is for life. Oh, Esther pondered. And then I said, but if Baba, that's me, Daddy, Baba, if Baba dies, then Mama is free to marry again. Do you want that, Esther? <laughs> Esther now was a, a, a little bit more perplexed, a bit shocked. She's just three. No, Baba, Baba can't die. Baba can't die. I'm glad she said that. <laughs> now, how do you respond to a three-year-old daughter responding in that way? Well, this was what I said. But our lives are in the hands of God. God might take Baba's life away. And so if Baba dies, Mama can find someone else to marry. And that person will become your daddy. Esther now in complete shock and horror. You can imagine. She says, no, Baba can't die. There is no one else like Baba. Mama will never find anyone else like Baba. Now at this point, as you can imagine, my rock-solid manly heart melted like jelly. Now that was only part of the conversation that we had. Straight after that conversation, I actually typed this down. I typed it all down. I filed away thinking that perhaps I'll use this one day in a sermon illustration and there you go but that's a correct lesson wasn't it that marriage is for life now i'm not suggesting that this is what you teach to your three-year-old daughter doing what i did shock him and scare him in that way but you see that was a correct lesson wasn't it marriage is for life one of my most exciting roles and tasks as a minister is to officiate weddings to marry couples now the most important part on a wedding day is not the reception we love reception we love the free food and the dancing and all that someone pays for it but we don't right uh, it, it's not the kissing moment it's not the singing it's not even the sermon that's not the most important part it's not even the signing of the register that is not the most important part on a wedding day the most important part on the wedding day are the vows that the couple make to each other they make these vows in front of friends and family but more than that 
they make those vows in the very presence of God. God is the witness to all weddings, whether they are Christian or not. And God will hold you to account to your vows. Now, in our Presbyterian church, what are the vows that we get new couples to make? Well, it goes like this. This is a vow from husband to wife. I, the husband's name, Bob, take you, Jane, to be my wife in Christian marriage. In the presence of God and before our family and friends, I promise to love and cherish you, comfort you, honour and serve you in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. Now just reflect on those vows for a moment. They're making huge promises there, aren't they? Huge promises. This is promising one life to another. Not just a normal life, in fact, a sinful life, committing one sinner to another sinner for life. They are big promises, big vows that are made on a wedding day. I'm here to commit to you for life, to love you, to cherish you, to honour you, to serve you. I'm making the promise that whether we live in a five-bedroom house in Turak or a two-bedroom shoebox in Majura, not that there's anything wrong with Majura, I'll stick by you. And I'll stick by you whether you can walk or run or you're stuck to the wheelchair. That's the promise that's being made on a wedding day. And I promise that I will not lay my eyes or my heart upon another like I do for you. That is what's being promised on the wedding day. And I will forsake, forsake this whole world, this whole world to faithfully commit only to you. That's the promise being made. But how long for? How long do we keep this promise? How long are we meant to keep this promise? Well, you see the last line there? As long as we both shall live. You see, what that's saying is that the only thing the only thing that will separate us is death. The only thing I'm promising that will separate us is death. That's the promise I'm making. That's the promise anyone makes when they get married. Now, of course, I'm sure with so many of us here tonight, many of us will only know too well that not all marriages are like that. Many of us would know this deeply. Many of us would perhaps even know this personally. Many of us would know of people or even of ourselves. Know that not all marriages only end in death. We would know of marriages that end well before death. Marriages that, in fact, end only a few years after marriage. It might be that auntie or that uncle or that cousin or that close friend or that the parent. Or it might even be you. And so as we reflect and think on this topic, we know that there is pain, there is hardship, there is sorrow, there are tears, there are lies, there are betrayals, the nights crying to sleep as marriage is ripped apart. And it's just heartbreaking. One of the most joyful jobs I have as a minister is to marry people. One of the saddest jobs I have as a minister is to hear of marital conflicts, issues, marriages that are tearing apart. 
and that weighs heavily on my heart. And so as we think and talk about this topic tonight, we need to talk about it, don't we? We can't just ignore difficult topics like this. But more than that, tonight we need to listen to what Jesus has to say about it. We want to be listening to Jesus. And so in our passage tonight, these are the questions that are raised to Jesus. Questions about divorce, questions about marriage. And so let's have a look at our passage. The very first question we get here is a question about divorce. Have a look at verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him and t- to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That was the question of the Pharisees. Divorce is okay, isn't it, Jesus? Surely it's okay for whatever reason. But do you notice there in that verse the intention of their question? It wasn't so that they can better understand the laws of God. But it was, in fact, to test Jesus. They were attempting to trap Jesus. Because if you understand and see the story of Matthew, the, stories of the, uh, the story of the gospel, what happened earlier in Matthew's gospel when someone else also spoke about divorce? Do you remember who that was? Do you remember John the Baptist? Early in chapter 14 of Matthew, he spoke out against divorce. He spoke out against Herod and Herodias. Those two, they were already married. What did they do? They got divorces with their wife and husband, and they formed a new marriage. Two broken marriages and this unlawful marriage. John the Baptist, he spoke out, that is unlawful. You should not be doing that. That is not allowed by God. And what happened to John the Baptist? Well, in the end, he was beheaded. His head brought into a party on a platter. And so do you see what these Pharisees were trying to do? They weren't just you know, interested in learning more. They were out there trying to get Jesus. They were hoping to corner Jesus that he might incriminate himself and end up dead like John the Baptist. But there's in fact more to the question. They, they were trying to trap Jesus, but I suspect they were also trying to justify their own abuse of divorce. You see, in some Jewish circles, a man, this was back 2,000 years ago, a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason, whether it's real or imagined. He would just declare it, and she would be gone, and that was okay. Even if the dinner meal was not cooked properly, it was in his right to divorce his wife. You are gone. No trial, no chance for appeal. And so I suspect what's happening here, the, the Pharisees, they were trying to trap Jesus, have him killed, but they were also trying to justify their own abuses of divorce. It was their way of trying to make adultery legal. I'm not happy with my wife. I'm going to divorce her, marry someone else. But that was them trying to make adultery legal. And so the Pharisees here were trying to get Jesus killed, but they were also trying to justify their own abuse of the law. Now, how did Jesus respond? Well, they tried to force his hand on this hot issue. What would a good politician do? A good politician, it's a difficult question. I'll avoid the question and I'll answer another question. That's a smart politician. But Jesus here, way smarter, way more wise, and he won't be cornered by them. So Jesus here, what he did was he, in a sense, avoided the question, but answered the heart of the question. 
And so the question about divorce was met with an answer about marriage. And here, Jesus goes back right to the very beginning, to creation, to the institution of marriage. And so look at verse 4. Jesus said, have you not read? Have you not read? You Pharisees, you're meant to be the teachers of the law. Have you not read, verse 4, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? And so before the fall in Eden, there was no gender confusion at all. You know, Adam looked at Eve and did not get confused that that was a female or male. It was clear. And then verse 5, for this reason, this now is the institution of marriage. For this reason, verse 5, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. See, that was the beginning of marriage. That was designed by God at creation, for creation. And so we see three parts to marriage. There's the leaving, there's the cleaving, and there's the uniting. So firstly, leaving, the leaving of the parents. What that is saying is that now that you are married, you have a new allegiance, a new form allegiance to your spouse. Now, when Yvonne and uh, I, we got married a bit over 13 years ago now, this was something we had to learn, especially in our culture where relationships to parents are very strong. Parents want to be involved in everything. And in our culture, some newly married couple, instead of uh, living elsewhere, they would move back home and live with their parents. Just imagine that, honeymoon at home with your parents. But we didn't do that, so don't you worry. We had to learn that our allegiance was to each other before our parents. And so leaving of the parents, that's the first thing. Second, we see here, in marriage, there's the cleaving to the spouse, the cleaving to the wife. Uh, to cleave means to bond, to become inseparable. Now, you may have heard me explain this before, but this word, to cleave, in the Hebrew, is also used elsewhere, elsewhere in the Old Testament of how an incurable disease clings to a person. So to cleave to someone is like an incurable disease clinging to a person and so when Yvonne and I got married I became like this giant disease that is stuck on her for life and she cannot get rid of me and she became this bigger disease that's stuck on me and there's no getting rid of her and so that's the idea of marriage there's the leaving and then there's the cleaving and then third there's the becoming one flesh so more than just sticking together it's actually the uniting becoming one in flesh in emotion, in spirit, in your whole being, in fact, in your whole existence. And so the Pharisees here, they were trying to play around with God's design for marriage. The bond is divinely ordained. All marriages, whether you're Christian or not, the bond is divinely ordained, not to be broken by people. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. Look at verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And I make sure I make that clear on all wedding days. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And so anyone, anyone at all, who breaks up a marriage, knowingly or unknowingly, is not just doing a bad thing. It's not even just doing a convenient thing. It is, in fact, acting in rebellion against God. 
anyone who breaks up a marriage is acting against God. And so the husband who has an affair and wants a divorce, he's acting in rebellion against God. The young woman who seduces and lures a man from his wife and kids, that lady is acting in rebellion against God. And so the Pharisees here, they were trying to loose the marriage bond, make it a bit looser. We can separate when we like. But Jesus shows here, he goes to the heart of their problem. He shows you that that bond is as tight as it can be because it is God who unites people in marriage. And so don't you dare divide it. And so here we see a question about divorce. It's met with an answer about marriage. And so now they take another swing at Jesus. They ask another question. Now a question about the law. Now they pit their, their hero, the Moses, the, the greatest prophet. They pit Moses against Jesus. So look at verse 7. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And so they're saying to Jesus, well, Moses allowed it. He's a great prophet. He allowed divorce, so it must be okay. Now, how did Jesus respond? Well, this question about the law is met with an answer about its intent. Look at verse 8. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. You see, Jesus is saying, don't you see? Marriage was always meant to be for life. That was God's design. That's the way God made marriage to be. And so when couples make their vows i promise to love you to be faithful to you as long as we both shall live not as long as it is convenient not as as long as we haven't signed our divorce papers yet as long as we both shall live but then we must still ask the question what the pharisees ask why then did moses permit divorce if it was meant to be for life Well, now we need to spend a bit more time thinking about divorce. And this is a difficult topic, and it is a sensitive topic for perhaps many of us here. You see, the divorce law was given as a concession to deal with the broken and fallen world in which we live. It was never an expression of the way God intended marriage to be, but it was given because of the hardness of the human heart. Humans, in their hardness of heart, their heart would lead them to do such wicked and evil and vile and toxic and betraying and heartbreaking things. And to whom? People would be willing to do that and have been doing that to the one they promised, I will love you till the day I die. That is the hardness of the human heart that humans can end up doing something so wicked and evil to the one they promise a love for life. And so divorce then is to be seen as a concession, not as the intention. Now one of my former lecturers at Bible College, he describes divorce this way. He calls it God's tragic grace. I actually quite like that description. He calls it God's tragic grace. It's tragic because the intention of marriage has not been met. 
It's tragic because it's always the result of some damaging sin that has destroyed the marriage. It's tragic because hearts in that relationship have gone wrong, where one or both will not practice repentance or forgiveness or reconciliation. And it's tragic because it certifies that the marriage is dead. It is tragic. Divorce is always tragic. It's never a happy ending with divorce. It's always tragic, but it is also God's grace. It's God's grace because it's God's gracious provision through Moses for dealing with the hardness of the human heart, of living in this fallen world where sin can become so vile and toxic that divorce becomes the only way to continue to live peacefully under God. And so I like that description. Divorce is God's tragic grace. Always tragic, but yet at the same time it was God's provision. Never to be abused like how the Pharisees were abusing it. Never to be abused or taken hold of for convenience sake, for selfishness sake, or misused in a twisted, perverted way like the Pharisees. You know, just finding a way out to get out of their marriage vows so that they can marry another. In fact, to use divorce to get out of marriage amounts to the same thing as committing adultery. Jesus, in a sense, equates you divorce for no good reason. That is just as bad as committing adultery. It's because divorce destroys the marriage, just like what adultery does. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. Have a look at verse 9 with me now. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, or the word there is literally sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And so the act of divorce is like adultery because it destroys marriage. Now in Australia, before 1975, it was a lot, a lot harder to get a divorce. Now I read up on this. Back then, there was the fault-based system of divorce which meant that to get a divorce, you have to have proven grounds for divorce. And there are 14 different uh, reasons that you can use or appeal to. But then after 1975, the no-fault divorce was introduced, which means that now in our society, anyone can get a divorce for whatever reason. Whatever reason you like, it's just easy. Separate for one year, apply for divorce, and that will be it. And so, as you can imagine, after 1975, divorce rates in Australia increased. Now, how are we Christians meant to see this? Well, we are to see divorce as God's tragic grace. A concession, not the intention. It's, it's not meant to be the easy way out. It's, it's not meant to be a good thing. And through the Bible, though the Bible does permit it, for Christians, is never encouraged. The aim of marriage is always to stick to your vows, stick to the marriage, to be shaped somehow in the mercy and grace of God, sh shaped by the gospel, that you would continue to love even though it is hard and difficult, that you would find in your heart to forgive just as you've been forgiven, that you will, will repent when you need to, and that you'll work towards reconciliation. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Christian is never allowed to withdraw her or his commitment to the marriage vows. And so the question here, 
about the law. They asked the question, and that was met with an answer about its intent. Divorce is never a morally neutral option, but always as evidence of sin, of the hardness of the human heart. Now, at this point in this passage, we've seen the Pharisees, they've asked two questions. Jesus answers both. But what's interesting now is what we don't see. Here, have a look at your passage. The, the Pharisees, they, they stop asking their questions. Now, remember how they began trying to trap Jesus, trying to test Jesus? They stopped testing Jesus. They stopped trying to trap Jesus. Now, I suspect what happened here was that they found themselves being trapped themselves. Jesus exposed them of their own sin, of their own hardness of heart, of how they perverted God's provision, God's gracious provision. And now the disciples, they've been listening in all of this. They now come up with their question. They're thinking, man, marriage is tough. You're stuck with that person for life. Marriage is like a life sentence. No one else. And so verse 10, what do they say? Look at the disciples. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. And that was their conclusion. It's too hard. Better not to marry. Now, how did Jesus respond? Well, now we've got a question about singleness. That is now met with an answer about the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus acknowledges that there is truth in what they're saying. He says, but what you say is true. For some, it is better not to marry. Look at verse 11. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. But of course, not every single person is able to make that choice. And so Jesus goes on to say, verse 12, for some are eunuchs because they were born that way, which perhaps could refer to those born with congenital defects. You can't get married. Or perhaps it could even refer to those with same-sex attraction, can't get married. And then Jesus goes on, others were made eunuchs, made that way by men. That could be referring to those who have been castrated, willingly or unwillingly, and particularly those eunuchs who served in the royal courts. That's what happened to them. But now after saying that, Jesus, what he does now is he refocuses this whole discussion to something bigger. They've been asking about divorce. They've been asking about the law. They've been asking about singleness. Jesus now directs their focus to something more important, something that takes precedence over getting married, and that is the kingdom of God. Jesus now goes and says, for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of God's honor, some will choose not to marry. Look at verse 12. And others have renounced marriage, or it's literally made themselves eunuchs, because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And if you know um, Christian missionaries from church history from the last century, many of the great ones were single. Many of the great ones consciously decided to be single for the sake of the kingdom. One such example is, or was, John Stott. He was perhaps one of the most prolific evangelical authors of the last century. 
one of the Christian leaders of the last century. He wrote the book Cross of Christ, which is a must-read for all Christians. He, he shared before he passed away. He lived 90 years as a single man. Before he passed away, he shared about being single. He said that in his 20s and 30s, he always expected that he would get married. But then when opportunities to, to get married came and fell through, he slowly began to believe that God meant for him to remain single. Just like the passage, what Jesus said, the one who can accept this should accept it, and he did. Late in life, this was what he said. He said, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, I think I know why. I could never have traveled or written as extensively as I have done if I had the responsibilities of a wife and family. Willingly choosing for the sake of the kingdom remain single. Who else did that? The Apostle Paul. Who else did that? The Lord Jesus chose to remain single for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so here we've got a question about singleness with an answer about the kingdom of God. And so in a sense, this very big confusion, uh, confusing discussion, divorce, marriage, singleness, Jesus now brings it to a point. There is something that is far more important, and that is the kingdom of God. Three questions, three answers. Now for us today, 2017, how are we meant to think about this? I mean, just those 12 verses, Jesus covered a lot. But by way of implications, a few things. Firstly, to the singles amongst us. Secondly, to those of us who are married. So firstly, to those of us who are single. I've got three things for you. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Now, what I mean is that for some, marriage has become like an idol. And it happens a lot, especially in Christian circles. And you can understand why, can't you? Because we value marriage. But for some, marriage becomes increasingly difficult, especially when you see friends around you getting married. But to believe that once I am married, I'll be finally content. I'll be finally complete. I'll be finally fulfilled. That is not true. The grass is not always greener on the other side. You see, because of the hardness of the human heart, marriage can be a source of great sorrow and hardship and despair and hurt and pain. And it makes sense. The person you love most is the person who can hurt you most. Isn't that right? The person you love most is the person who can hurt you most. And that happens all the time in marriages. And so grass is not always greener. Though marriage in God's design is meant to be good, it's meant to be great, in fact, but it is not without its issues and problems in this fallen world. Marriage will not solve your problems. Second point. Therefore, be in no rush to get married. Be in no rush to get married. John Stott, in his paper, he reckons you should only get married when you get to 25 years old because then you're mature enough. And there's some truth in that. You see, unless you have some Christian maturity in you, unless you know how to repent of your sins, unless you can examine yourself and show that you are wrong and repent of them, unless you are able to forgive sins of others, 
Now, not just a stranger, but someone you love, unless you're able to forgive the deepest hurt, unless you have the grace to work toward reconciliation. If that is not your nature, if that is not the level of your maturity, then perhaps you're not yet fit to get married. So that's point two for you. Therefore, be in no rush to get married. Third, embrace the gift that God has given you now. You see, for most of you here are still single. And you're single because that is to be seen as God's gift to you in your life package now. That's not to say that things might not change in the future, but it means that you don't put life on a hold because you're single. Or more importantly, you do not put the things of God on a hold because you're single. You don't, do not put serving God on a hold. You do not put the kingdom of God on a hold because you're single. Now, I, I'm a person who, I've always liked the idea of going overseas and doing a short-term mission somewhere. In my life package, as a married man, as a father, it's just difficult to juggle. Difficult to manage those responsibilities. I would love opportunities like that just to go because I can without any attachment. But because I am a married man, Yvonne, in a sense, in not a bad way, but ties me down. Not in a bad way. You know what I mean. But if I was single, I can do these things for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so if you are single, and many of you are, Make the most of the opportunities you have now for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, to those of you who are married, two things. Firstly, remember your vows. Marriage, there are ups and downs because it's the joining of two sinners. So when life gets tough and hard and difficult, there are financial pressures there's the busyness of work. There's a truckload of work. There are the kids to manage and to discipline. And it all just becomes so overwhelming. Remember your vows. Don't go straight to divorce and find the easy way out. There's no easy way out. And it's immoral. Remember your vows. Unconditional commitment, the commitment you made on your wedding day, must never be reduced to conditional commitment. Other person-centeredness, the promise you made on your wedding day, must never turn to self-centeredness. The command of Jesus, forgiveness 77 times, must never dwindle down to forgiveness. This last time I will forgive you. You see, with God's help, with the Spirit's empowering, with the model and pattern of the gospel, with the fellowship of believers, remember your vows. And it is livable. Second thing to the married, remember the kingdom as well. Just like for the single, remember the kingdom of God. I mean, that was how the passage ended. Jesus drew all that messy conversation down to this point, to the kingdom of God. Redirect the focus to this point. Keep our eyes, keep your eyes on the kingdom of heaven. You see, marriage is not meant to be inward looking this self-obsessive existence it's just me and my wife or my husband and that's it but marriage is to be lived out in the service of god it must be kingdom focus why is that 
It's because it is for the sake of souls, for the salvation of souls. That is at stake. The honour of God is at stake. Now, remember that little conversation I had with Esther that I shared at the beginning. Th that was, in fact, unfinished. This was the rest of it. You see, in my little conversation with Esther when she was free, I, I didn't want to just teach her a lesson about marriage and death. I wanted to teach her a lesson about the kingdom of God, sort of what Jesus was doing here with the disciples and the Pharisees. And so this was the rest of the conversation. It went like this. And so the last line she said, Baba, but Baba can't die. There's no one else like Baba. Mama can't find anyone else like Baba. And then at that point, what do you say? Well, I wanted her to see that there is more to life than just my marriage to your mother. There is something bigger than that. There is something far more important that I want you to be a part of. I wanted her to see the kingdom perspective. And so this was what I said to her. I said, no need to worry. Baba will see you in heaven. Remember, she's only three years old at this time. And so she asked, but, but how will I see you when you're dead? I said, because God will bring us back to life again. Just like what God did with Jesus after three days. But you have to trust in Jesus. Do you trust in Jesus? She said, yes, at three. Kingdom perspective. For us who are married, remember the kingdom. Because in the future, what will happen? If we do believe in Jesus, whether we've lived our lives happily single, or whether we've lived our lives despairingly single, whether we've lived our lives happily married, or whether we've lived our lives painfully married, whether we've, uh, our marriages last till the day we die, or whether we've experienced the tragedy of divorce, all of that, all of those experiences will make way to a greater experience in the kingdom of God, being united to Christ as his perfect, blameless, spotless bride, and the experience of joy and peace and contentment and fulfillment that is unknown in this broken world. That is the future the kingdom perspective that all of us must have. But until then, with God's help, with each other's help here, we learn in our life package, whatever God has given us, to be joyfully single or joyfully married. So let me pray to that end. Let's pray.